This is the Author Archive podcast. I'm David Freeman. Today, I'm in conversation with Rose Collis about her book, Colonel Barker's Monstrous Regiment, which at publication in the last century was subtitled A Tale of Female Husbandry. The person at the centre of this story was born Lilias Irma Valerie Barker on the 27th of August, 1895. She grew up married, married an Australian, had two children, but then life changed. Valerie became victor. She gave herself army ranks, married again as a man. But to get a handle on the story, when I talked to Rose Collis, the author, I first asked her, well, who was this person? She she started life as uh, the the daughter of um, a very respectable couple, middle to upper middle class, not titled gentry, but but comfortably off her. Um, she was born in Jersey, in, in all places, very respectable, and um, her father did work as an architect briefly, and then inherited some money and lived the the life of a, of a comfortable private gentleman. So um, they weren't extremely well off, but they, they lived comfortably off. Um, when she was very small, they moved to Surrey, um, as, as people of that ilk would do. And she had uh, quite a sort of stereotypical uh, upbringing of that kind, really. She was sent to convent school a little later on. She, was a, she hints that she was a bit of a wild child, um, but she was quite a tomboy. I mean, she was very tall, um, as an adult, she was six foot tall, which in those days was really unusual for a woman. It's it's startling now, but if you you, you were talking turn of the century, Edwardian times, sort of uh, late late early twenties, so uh, she got quite a figure even as a girl. Um, she loved horse riding and was very very fit and vibrant. And she had a younger brother who, who from what I can tell, was a bit of a weed. He was always being ill and, and, and didn't like sporty stuff. So it was absolutely classic in that way, the, the strapping tomboy daughter and, and the sort of weedy younger brother. But in that milieu, she'd be put out to the marriage market quite early, wouldn't she? Yes, yeah, she was. Uh, she, she, she came out, which is quite a different meaning nowadays. Yes. She was, came out to society at 18, as, as, as people of that class did. And um, there, there were various young gentlemen of the county sort of sniffing around um, for a couple of years. And, um, but of course, what happened was the First World War, which changed things quite a bit. Um, and therefore, it's no great coincidence that she ended up marrying an Australian soldier who would, who would come over to, to fight the good fight. So I think her marriage prospects, as it were, would have changed quite a bit had the war not intervened. Hmm. She goes to the war, she, she's quite good, I mean she teaches herself to drive, so mm -hmm. she's quite good at mechanical mm. things. Mm. So in the war she'd have thrived, wouldn't she? Yes, she did. Um, she started off as a, a, a voluntary nurse, the VADs, but that was I think she found that a bit too girly, to be honest mm. with you. Um, and when, when it was a chance to become more involved, things driving ambulances, driving lorries, taking horses, because she was very good with horses, you see. So, um, and horses were used a lot in the First World War. The, the, and, and she worked at a, a, what was called a remount depot, isn't quite as literal as it sounds. So, and that's how she came to know a lot of, a lot of the soldiers that she became pals with. And um, 
towards the end of the war, she joined the fledgling Women's Royal Air Force, um, which is quite hilarious because as soon as it was up and running, then the war ended, so it was disbanded again. But that just shows you the type of adventuring she, she was looking for even then. And so was she married by the end of the war? She was married by the end of the war, um, but it was all going very wrong what, quite what early was, on. What was, what was the problem? Well, I think... Given her upbringing and given her, her, her father, she was obviously very, very fond of her father. He was a very polite, kind gentleman, very, you know, very gentlemanly. So she had this idealised, almost romanticised image of what gentlemen should be. And obviously, if she was going to get married, that she wanted to marry someone like her dad. I'm a lot dear old dad, so that's a you know, cockney song. So um, she ended up marrying this chap called Harold Arkle, Harold Arkle Smith, who was uh, a bit of a bit of a rough and ready chap and she says at, in, in, at one point that he tried to hide his roughness by being you know he paid her courtly attentions and things like that but um he also danced visions of he had this huge ranch in australia and why didn't she come and marry him and they could you know she, she loved horses she's thinking great mm. i have my own ranch and breed horses in australia and it's sunny all the time um but in common i think with many women of that age and that generation that time they weren't given any sort of prenuptial sex talk and I think she found um, the sex part of the marriage a bit of a shock to put it <laughs> mildly um, and her husband she really you know he, he once they were married he he dropped all sort of pretensions of being a gentleman and um, showed his true colours and was a bit of a you know typical Australian soldier of that time liked a beer and was very you know a bit uncouth and then she also realised that the ranch was all an illusion so all her illusions were shattered, and the, the marriage really didn't last that long. No. Uh, um, so it so all, she removed herself. She did. Um, well, he he went. Um, he, he they got married, and then he got he, he got sent back, and and then by that time she just decided she didn't want to know. So she joined the RAF and moved around and went back home to mum and dad for a bit. But then she met another man. She met another man. And another Australian. <laughs> And fell in love, really? Yes, she was very specific about that. I don't think she fell in love with her first husband, but mm. seemed to fall in love, albeit briefly, with her, her common-law husband, which is what I call him, who was Ernest Pierce Crouch. Um, and well, virtually eloped with him, not to get married. He was a, he was a married man. Um, he had a wife in England um, and told her that there was no chance of a divorce. Or I mean, we don't know why there was no chance of a divorce, but it had a stigma attached to it in those days, obviously, that it doesn't so much now. And um, went off to Paris with him. He got a job there working working for the Times and had two children with him, which must have scandalised her family and everybody that knew her. Um, you know, we think nothing of it today, but if you think, you know, we're talking uh, just after the First World War. She was married, he was married. They run off together and have two children. But then that one began to go wrong. Yes. Uh, if you take her side of the story, it, it was that he began to drink and was a bit of a lazy, feckless character. And they, well, after he got fired from, from the job in Paris, they came back with these two very small children and took over a farm and started to do that. She said, oh, I had to do all the work. And we don't know. We never got to hear Pierce Crouch's side of the story, even though he was given an opportunity to, to, to put it later on but according to her he was he was a bit of a loser really and um she'd had enough i think and we fast forward a little bit and then this person goes to a hotel mm -hmm. and becomes a different person mm. she's 
mother, she's a mother of two, mm -hmm. twice married to all intents yes, and purposes. Yeah. She goes in one as one character and comes out as completely another. Can Victor Barker. Now, if you decide to change from Valerie to Victor and you've got two small children, what's happening to them? Well, what happened, I mean, this was all very, very curious. Um, the little girl who was, I think, less than a year old at the time, if I remember correctly, was actually given up to uh, some relatives of her common-law husbands. So the girl, the, so both parents gave up the child. Now, in those days, uh, there wasn't any official adoption. That didn't happen until 1927. So there's no trace of what happened to that girl at all. There's no paperwork. It's just, do you want a baby? Here it is. Yes, fine. And off they went. Um, as far as I can tell, I think they may have gone back to Australia, but it was there's no paperwork. There's nothing there. The little boy, Valerie, as she was, then decided to keep him. And I, I think that was quite interesting, that she wanted to keep her son rather than her daughter. Um, and he was a very small boy when, when the marriage broke up and, and this was all happening. He was less than two years old. So uh, some people said to me, well, how could you persuade her son? I said, well, you think you've got a toddler child. Mm. It's not going to be too difficult, is it, to sort of say, no, I'm your daddy, actually, and getting to call you daddy. They're not going to remember very much when, when they grow up. So, so mummy becomes daddy. That's right. And there's pictures of him um, just after making this dramatic change in life. And very, very feasible, isn't it? Very mm. possible. Mm. So it's not unusual that a woman would fall in love with him. No, not so. He was a wonderful figure. If you think about it, for, for one of those times, and particularly just after the First World War, we're talking the early 20s, a whole generation of men in Britain had been wiped out. Those that hadn't been wiped out were maimed. They had legs missing, arms missing, abdominal wounds, or lost an eye. So for Victor Barker to appear, this strapping, tall, dark, handsome, six-foot, very neatly attired, well-groomed, um, sporting these medals. A very unusual eligible bachelor, if you think about it. But, you know, <laughs> I mean, but. But! <laughs> they, they go and get married. Mm. And they go off on honeymoon. Mm -hmm. You say, we don't really know what happened that mm. night. But at some time, the new wife is going to kind of twig, isn't she? Well, you have, there, there are a couple of things to say about this. Um, they were both, at the time it emerged, they were both very keen to say, oh, nothing of un, any untoward nature happened. They, 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 they didn't want to be seen as, quote, perverts or, quote, degenerates. They were both very clear about that. But it later emerged that Elfrida who was Barker's wife, had given a statement to the police saying that something did happen on the honeymoon night, but it only happened on the honeymoon night. Now, you'd think, well, surely she would notice that something wasn't quite right. you think, this is 1923. You've got a, what we, you know, you call a, a late spinster woman. She was in her late 20s, which in those days was on the shelf. She's had a very protective background, which again was not unusual for women of those times. She's lived at home with her parents all her life. Her father's a chemist in Littlehampton. Not a worldly person at all. And in those days, a man, a gentleman like Barker, would really have dictated what went on in the bedroom. His wife wouldn't have known what to expect, really. She may, perhaps working in chemist, have picked up a few facts of life. But there was no way she was going to actually dictate what I would call the bedroom agenda. So whatever he did, would have seemed perfectly normal to her. Plus there were so many, it was a wonderful glamorous life for her. 
She was married to this Sir Victor Barker, the Colonel, a war hero, ostensibly, living the life of Riley in the Grand Hotel in Brighton. And then they would go and be, he, he became an actor. It's a wonderful, very different life to what, to what she'd had. So he not only gives himself a new, a new gender and a new first name, he gives himself a title as well. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And he kept upgrading, he kept promoting himself the older he got. Oh, I like he, that. He became a DSO eventually. Yes. Where he got that from, I don't know, he bought it in some metal shop. But uh, <laughs> he kept promoting himself. Which is, uh, so, and they're living in this, this hotel mm. until the money ran out? Well, the money started to... <laughs> Victor Barker was really bad with money. That was that was his ultimate downfall, as, as, I, as I outline in the book. Um, and eventually, yes, I mean, living in the Grand Hotel in Brighton, which was expensive then as it is now, and, and you know, going out for dinners and all these expensive clothes and everything. Plus, eventually, to begin with, there's a nanny for the little boy, and eventually he's sent to boarding school, which all, all costs money. So the Barkers sort of try their hand at sort of more menial jobs. They'd be running kennels and working on farms and this doesn't suit Barker at all um, so th they they began to run into financial trouble from early on but he always seemed to manage to find some sort of work to do and as I say he worked sort of in the theatre and, and, and stuff but um, he didn't actually he was really struggling and, and then his weedy brother died bless him when he was only in his late 20s and so he left him some money to <laughs> the woman who had been his sister, but was now his brother. So he was he was rescued by an inheritance again. So that was able to sort of last him a few a few years more. Right at the beginning of the book, um, we meet him as um, a clerk in the entrance hall of a hotel. Yes, the Regent's Palace Hotel in the West End. Very smartly dressed. Very smartly dressed. We have no idea what the voice is like. No. But but he's passing as a man, and the police come. Mm. Why do the police want him? Well, again, money <laughs> he got into difficulties. He's had some once he got the inheritance from his brother, he had some crazy idea about running at a cafe um, just off the Charing Cross Road, the mascot cafe. Um, but he, he really hadn't done his homework properly and it, again, within a few months it, it was running at a loss. And he was behind with the rent for the premises and hadn't paid it, and so the lady who owned the building served a, bank, a bankruptcy order on him. By that time, he closed the cafe, so the bankruptcy order was sitting on the floor of the cafe and wasn't found. So uh, within a very short space of time, the bailiffs were looking for him. So um, when it was the bailiff came looking for him at the Regent's Palace Hotel for, for a bankruptcy problem. So rather, the, rather than mm. what we, we know eventually happened. So he's taken away um, mm. in the end and finds himself in prison. Brixton, Brixton Prison. Um, where the secret is bound to come out, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Yes, he was... I mean, it must have been a, a terror... Whatever we think about Barker, I mean, you have to have some sympathy. He must have been absolutely terrified because the whole house of cards was about to fall down. He, he, he pulled it off for six years, which is a long time. So, you know, to be able to do, and to do all the different things he did, all the different careers and the, the different women he took up with, six years is a long time. And here you are, he's in Brixton prison. As was normal, the doctor was going to give him a medical examination. He said, um, excuse me, can I have a word, please? Do I have to take my vest off? Is virtually what he said. And they said, of course you do, you know, you're a prisoner. And uh, he had a word with the doctor, and, and the doctor guessed and said, you're a woman, aren't you? And he said, yes. And um, 
<laughs> the governor of Brixton prison picked up the phone and got onto the uh, the governor of Holloway women's prison and said, um, I think we've got a prisoner for you here. And so that's what happened. So Valerie. And the story continues. Just read the book, Colonel Barker's Monstrous Regiment by Rose Collis. And he died, he was living as a man then. He died under the name Geoffrey Norton. He'd appeared in a Blackpool sideshow called On a Strange Honeymoon. But he died. He called himself Geoffrey Norton and was living in Kessingland in Suffolk. This is the Author Archive podcast. And I've got some more strange stories up my sleeve for another day. Tell your friends. <laughs>